Welcome back to the First Corner Podcast. We are back with a two-parter for you, with none other than Jordan Grand Prix stalwart Ian Phillips. From scooping autosport stories out of the mechanics in the pub, to running the Leighton House Formula 1 team, including luring Adrian Newey back from IndyCar to Formula 1. In this first part, we cover the early Jordan days, including the 24-hour hotel room fight from Michael Schumacher's services. Sit back and enjoy. Ian Phillips, the, the long, long career you've had in Formula One, you've been a stalwart of the Jordan Grand Prix team for years. I had a re- I had a little read of an article yesterday on lunch with Simon Taylor, and you probably remember that article. I do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it, Simon was the man who started it all off for you, I guess. Um, will, will we chat a little bit about your background and see how, you know, how it all got into Jordan and stuff? So um, yeah, yeah, you've, you've, yeah, you started okay. off at Autosport, I believe. Yeah, I did. Uh, I was uh, a seven-pound-a-week messenger boy. Um, I had no idea what I was going to do at all. Um, you know, my parents were mentioning the army and university, and I was sort of stalling them. But the one thing that my dad did do uh, was uh, give me a copy of Order Sport every week after uh, he'd finished devouring it. And while studying uh, Homer's Odyssey for my A-level, I stumbled across an advert in the back of Autosport saying, wanted messenger boy, um, opportunity to learn about print and this, that and the other. So I applied and uh, lo and behold, I got the job. (laughs) Um, Amazing. And that was the 20th of July, 1969. Wow. So it was literally just a case of uh, they needed a messenger person, and you're like, yeah, applying and get a job in F1. It was really was as simple as that. Listen, it was it wasn't that easy in those days. Um, I mean, it, you know, it really was the the job of putting a magazine together in those days was uh, bloody hard work. <laughs> um, and you know, there was a staff of about five, and obviously, I I wasn't writing at the time, but all all the other staff members, uh, Simon, who was editor, Quentin Sperry, deputy editor, uh, Justin Haler, News, and Jeff Hutchinson, reporters. They would all go away at the weekends, come back, but we would all meet at a, at a printer's on a Monday morning um, and do a 36-hour shift to put the magazine together. And not only did was it written by the staff, obviously lots of freelancers as well, and it was my job to collect their copy, um, and yeah, I mean, we just did a 36 hour shift to, to, to put the thing together. There wasn't not a computer in sight, nothing. And I was, well, was Autosport, was Autosport out on a Thursday every week back then? Yes. I, I, we might've been a Friday and then we brought it forward to a Thursday. Initially right. it was, a, it, it was a Friday and at some stage it moved to, uh, to a Thursday. Um, but, uh. It, you know, it, I I was lucky. I was I was with with these guys. You know, who were going to races. They got all the stories. I watched the news stories being put together. 
and um, and I learned about production um, of of the magazine. Um, and I just I had uh, oh yeah. Then in nineteen early nineteen seventy, there was the start of I think it was the World Cup rally or something like that. It was something big going on, and they hadn't got enough people to cover. Uh, all of the club races were going on the same weekend. So I said, I'll go. And I was dispatched to an MG car club meeting at Brands Hatch. Um, and from that moment on, I never stopped writing. Um, just stuck a yeah. trade. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I was, you, you'd be at, I don't know, Alton Park on a Friday, Castle Coombe on a Saturday. Um, Brands Hatch on a Sunday and Snetterton on a Monday if it was a bank holiday weekend um, and that's what we did and you know you get to know a lot of people um, because Simon Taylor said to me right if there's a hundred competitors I want a hundred and one quotes from you um, oh. <laughs> and that, that was the mantra that about all I was ever told really <laughs> <laughs> well um, it you, uh, well, you, so you had a good, you had a good circle of connections then in the in the F one world by the nineteen seventies, I'd say. Well, yeah, um, I got into international reporting in seventy one, and I started doing Formula Two, which was pretty good. I didn't do them all in those days. We couldn't afford; we had to use freelancers in certain places and so on. Uh, but I did all the all the close to home ones, and at the end of. 71, I was uh, very lucky to be sent to the Formula 2 Temporada Series, which was, I think, six weeks in Brazil and four weeks in Argentina. And although I got to know a lot of people on the way, the, the Ron Dennis's of this world and people like that, um, yeah, I got to know them really well, Graham Hill, Frank Williams, uh, Nicky Lauder, whatever, you know, I got to know them all uh, really well while we were on that trip, the Fittipaldi brothers. Um, and so when I came back from from that, December time, oh, I'd actually just I'd had my first, my biggest news scoop, um, which sent me in the direction of being a newsman, was August Bank Holiday 1971, the non-championship Formula 2 race at Brands Hatch. And after the race, uh, I helped Nicky Lauder take his luggage back to his car and uh, put it inside. Uh, Jussie was closing the boot. You know, Eccleston, Eccleston, he by Brabham. No, who's Eccleston? You know, the manager of Rock and Wind. He by Brabham. See you next time. <laughs> so, <laughs> Jeez. Uh, so that was um, uh, my, uh, my first major scoop, if, if you like. Um, it wasn't confirmed for about three months. Everybody was denying it. And actually, when I got back from Brazil, one of the first calls I took uh, was, uh, the name's Eccleston. I just bought Brabham. <laughs> um, and he'd been arguing the toss over 15 grand with Ron Tornak during those three months. That's right, of course, from, from Ron Tornak. And in the, in yeah. the 1970s, like you had, um, that was really kind of your entry point into the sport. And I know you, you might have obviously still been covering a little bit of Formula 2 and Formula 3, you would would you have crossed paths with Eddie Jordan in the 1970s as he was coming up through the ranks? <laughs> Did I just? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, during, I was appointed editor of Autosport in 
uh, July 73 and um, was editor for what, the next three and a half years. Um, and basically, <laughs> we after we'd done our shift of putting the magazine together Monday, Tuesday, uh, we would end up in a in a pub in Notting Hill Gate in London called the Windsor Castle. And basically, word went round that if you wanted a mention in order sport, you had to come and buy us a drink. <laughs> and, and generally, uh, that's what happened. And the whole racing fraternity and running fraternity would uh, would turn up. And... One time, I think it was about 75, a contingent from Ireland turned up. <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh, one of which was Eddie Jordan, who ended up back at my house telling me that he was going to be Ireland's first ever Grand Prix driver. <laughs> he, was a, he, was, um, he was a showman from the minute he walked in the door, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think he invited me over, I think, to a race in Mondello Park. And he crashed on his way to the circuit on Friday and broke his legs. So he didn't take part. Oh, that's right. I, I I remember reading about that. It was a horrific, horrific enough accident then. And yeah, so like when, when you, obviously, that's when you first crossed paths with, with Eddie. And sort of through the 70s and 80s, you, you were still kind of involved in, in sort of journalism. And you were also involved in... Donington Park, right? You were in what? Well, when oh, was yeah. when was the circuit built? Was uh, to Donington in, I think it was June seventy six, um, and you know Tom had told me it was all ready to go. <laughs> it wasn't, uh, and we finally opened in I think May seventy seven. Uh, but there was an awful lot of work to do. I mean. There was there was building work, uh, but I had a lot of negotiating with uh, all the promoters and and stuff like that. But we we got it, we did get it open, um, and we used to get invaded by uh, the Irish. Be it, we were running I don't know Formula Three, Formula Atlantic races, whatever club, and and the Irish used to come over because it was quite a relatively easy weekend trip for them. But uh, uh, what? Brought us out. <laughs> I mean, the bar takings were extremely good. The problem is, the Irish would only pay in punt. By the time our financial director exchanged them into pounds, weren't worth very much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the old Irish fund probably wasn't what the sterling was back then, all right. No, no, it definitely wasn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we all used to laugh about it. And uh, yeah, they. they they were good times, and you know, EJ came over uh, a few times, and you know, there was uh, Daly and Devani, and you know, all right. all that. And we were all good mates, Mickey Rowe, um, and yeah, I mean, you know, we um, we knew each other then, and some of us know each other now. <laughs> when did you kind of get involved from going from sort of like the journalism circuit management side into racing? Because I know sort of in the late 80s you ended up at Leighton House, but how did you get involved at first? Was it something in the oh. 80s where you were working at the junior categories? Right, okay. No, I uh, I left Donington in the end of 78, I think it was, because um, it was just too far away from London. There wasn't enough happening for me, uh, yeah. if you like. Then, inadvertently, not, not planned, obviously, one of my 
one time flatmate uh, got an Nielsen court cancer um, and obviously ultimately died from it. I got charged with uh, setting up the Good and Nielsen cancer treatment campaign to raise money for Charing Cross Hospital where he'd been treated. Um, so I ended up doing that for 18 months. Uh, then about 1980, that was starting to wind down. And I just, I don't know, some, Quentin Spurring, I think, had taken over as editor of Autosport, which I'd always set him up to be anyway. And he asked me if I would do the whole of the Formula 2 championship for them, which I said yes. Then I got a PR contract from Honda and March Engineering and Bridgestone. Um, and the well, the other the thing was obviously because I had the ability, I knew how to produce a magazine. I could produce PR stuff for people, and they were all everybody was sponsorship was taken off. Everybody wanted brochures and stuff like that, and I was able to do those with my eyes closed. And so I was doing that during the week and going off initially doing Formula Two races, but I also did uh, the Autosport news pages. I used to go there on a Monday just to do the news pages um, because the Grand Prix editor by then, I think, was Nigel Roebuck. And Nigel, for all the fact that he was a beautiful, beautiful writer, he wouldn't know a news story if it hit him on the head. Um, and I was just being fed stories from all over the place. I knew a lot of people. At Formula 2 races, you got uh, drivers who were about to go into Formula One, and yeah, I, I mean, I could pick the phone up to Ron Dennis or Bernie Eccleston or whoever it was and say, "Listen, what's going on here, guys?" Um, and they were giving stories. Um, there you go. Wow, it's, it's having the having the contacts is worth an awful lot for a new scoop, I'm sure. And that that's what I built up uh, during the seventies. Um, you know, because there was no social media. I mean, I still have my address book somewhere here at home with everybody's home telephone numbers in it, you know, Emerson, Fittipaldi, Ayrton, Senna, didn't matter. I had all, all their telephone numbers and they would always take my calls. It, wasn't, it really wasn't a problem. Um, that's, that's interesting. I have, I have a quick one on this now. Um, funny you say that because I remember, do you remember obviously later in the, obviously after the post-Jordan era, Eddie Jordan was on the BBC and Matt, he used to always have some insider scoop, and people used to say, "Where the hell is he getting this from?" You know, um, yeah. I'm sure. Would it, would it be wrong in saying that he's rang you a few times to ask for a couple of scoops? Um, he was pretty good latterly. I mean, say long past George Bernie Eccleston would feed him stories. Ah, right, gotcha. That I was thinking, all I, right, because there I you had to check. I had to check it out or make sure they went in the right direction. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. No, it's but there you go. And, and like that's um the the big thing that sort of sells news is who's got who's got a news story before it breaks. And that was that was always the the intriguing thing of of, of watching F one and reporting on F one. How did you so when you got into you're obviously working in Leighton House and I, I believe it was a Japanese sponsor who was in were they in Formula Two and then they how did they get into Formula One, so, was it just a case of a happened, driver? What happened was in 1986 uh, was sent to Japan by Marlborough and there was no direct flights to Japan in those days. I went 19 times in nine months via Anchorage 
um, which was great for my air miles, which I'm still spending, um, but uh, not particularly good for my health because I was reporting the Formula 3000 championship in Europe and the Formula 2 championship in Japan. And uh, what happened was Leighton House were sponsoring a team out there um, in, in their home country. And between uh, Hiroshi Yasukawa of Bridgestone uh, and myself and Marlborough, um, we got Ivan Capelli, who was the F3000 champion in Europe, uh, to do two races at the end of the season in uh, in Japan, uh, the last two races of the championship. And he won the first one at Fuji and finished second at Suzuka. And at dinner after the race, the boss of uh, Leighton House, uh, Akira Akagi, asked Ivan, well, he said, I'll give you a million dollars if you come and drive for me uh, in Japan next year. And Ivan said, no, no. I really want to drive in Formula One. So Akagi said, well, how much is that going to cost? And Ivan said, a million and a half dollars. And Akagi just leant over the table and said, congratulations, you're in Formula One. Back then, <laughs> now, the economy in Japan was massive then, wasn't it? Well, I tell you what, we got 600 yen to the pound, I think. It's 120 now. Um, wow. But uh, <laughs> um, anyway, obviously, I was uh, March's PR man <laughs> on the quiet. Uh, Ivan's manager, Cesare Garibaldi, was March's agent in Italy. So the pair of us went off to see uh, Robin Hurd, the boss of March, and said, right, here you are, here's the budget to go Formula One next year. I mean, to be fair, Robin had told me he wanted to do it because it was the switchover between turbos, which were far too expensive for anybody. So yeah. they, they created this normally aspirated class. And because Bernie was short of numbers, he'd take one car teams and, and all the rest of it. And um, so, anyway, there you are, Robin. There's the budget. He managed your driver. Bye. Anyway, about a month later, six weeks later, Robin calls me and says, I can't find anybody to run this Formula One team. You've got 24 hours to make up your mind. And oh. seemed like a no brainer at the time. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> He said, it's all ready to go. All... I mean, luckily, I'd moved to near Bista uh, at the time anyway because there was so much work here um, in and around. And uh, anyway, I went to the factory, which was the old Ram factory, and the electricity was cut off, the gas was cut off, bones were cut off. Uh, but anyway, I kick-started it all, placed, placed an ad in Autosport, kind of similar to the one <laughs> that I'd answered that many years before, saying, uh, starting a new Formula One team, anybody want to come and join? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That, but that, I suppose back then, that's what it was like for a startup team. It was, who could you grab to support you? And the numbers wouldn't have been huge. You might have had maybe 20, 30 people uh, running a, a one-car yeah, team, right? In the first year, we were 19, yeah. Um, but we, had, we were only running one, one car. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, luckily, again, because of places that I've been and, you know, I knew enough guys because mechanics were very, very good sources of information if you bought them a drink. Um, and, you know, that's where I got a lot of my news stories from. So I knew a lot of them. Um, and so, you know, I was able to, I handpicked the top three or four guys and they did, and they did the rest, if you like. Um, gotcha. 
yeah, so that was the start of a Formula One career. <laughs> wow, incredible. I have a quick I do have a quick question of one of your members of staff there, and you probably know who I'm going to ask about. How did you lure uh, Adrian Newey back from IndyCar into F1? And you obviously knew Adrian from before. So what was the thing where you said we have to have Adrian? Uh, yes, uh, I knew Adrian very well for a start at one stage before he started <laughs> earning mega bucks. I used to travel with him to Formula 2 races when he joined March in 82. And he was Johnny Chicotto's race engineer. Um, so I got to know him pretty well. And he went off to America, but he, he lived, rather than in my village, a rather more upmarket one, two miles away. So when he came back from America, I used to have a drink with him uh, once or twice a week. About July time, I started saying, Adrian, you know, it's really his time that you were doing Formula One and all the rest of it. And, you know, yes, he, he was keen. Um, and... I sort of paved the way. I got a couple of my race engineers who also were quite excited by uh, the project. It took a while to get Robin Hurd to uh, accept that that's what we wanted to do. Well, he didn't really want to pay the money that I had agreed with Adrian, which was a fifth of what he was earning in America. Um, but I did promise him 10% of the prize money. Not that we'd ever had any so uh, i didn't know how much that was going to be um and anyway finally robin agreed to it uh adrian had to finish off doing his job in america which went on until november um but he spent a lot of time obviously in airplanes uh during race cars <laughs> yeah putting, definitely putting all, putting all his ideas down obviously got a wind tunnel program going and stuff like that and um, lo and behold, he's, I mean, he had worked in Formula One before, but very briefly with teams that didn't survive. Um, and, um, you know, here he was, he was in charge. It was his program. He could call the shots. And, um, you know, he came up with what I still believe is one of the most beautiful Grand Prix cars of all time. Which was it, it, was, it was such uh, a revolution from anything else at the time. It was such a small little car. And um, it was insane how aerodynamically that car was moved the game on in the 80s. You know, like people oh. could often draw Formula One cars on the back of a ruler or, or an eraser or something. But this car was just such a, a departure from everything else that was on the grid. And it was regularly fighting for points only for a lack of engine power. Um, I'm yeah. sure March could have or sorry, Leighton House could have won a couple of races. Yeah, I mean, we probably we should have. It was it was quick out of the box. I mean, when the thing you say, it was different. I mean, the mechanics who were putting it together, most of them were ex-Brabham people. Um, they kept coming to me and said, what are they smoking in the drawing office? It's not a Formula 3 car we're building. Everything was so small compared to what they'd been used to. Um, but, you know, the thing the thing came out. I mean, nobody could. Uh, <laughs> Ivan couldn't fit in it and stuff. But anyway, that didn't matter. As long as it was quick, he didn't mind. And it was quick out of the box. A bit unreliable because we, we were using, we had to use some March production stuff like gears and, and things like that, which um, were a bit on the cheap, uh, to be honest. And it took us until the French Grand Prix, I think, uh, to get it reliable. And also for, for Adrian and the engineers to understand the settings. And this was a whole new ball game. 
Um, but from, I think, France onwards, we scored points just about uh, every race, uh, a few podiums, and uh, we finished second in Portugal, which was fantastic, absolutely unbelievable. Um, and we led in Japan, only for Ivan to get really excited and inadvertently switch the engine off. Um, so <laughs> we, were, we were a DNF, but having started fourth, we'd actually, uh, the only normally aspirated car to lead uh, a turbo race during, um, during that era. Yeah, uh, um, it was such it was such a it was such a start such an amazing start up and and unfortunately then obviously as as time went on, um you got a little bit unwell and you were out for a period of time and from what I've read in the lunch with Simon Ta- Simon Taylor article was when you kind of came back um Adrian had gone to Williams and basically the team wasn't in in was well, the team was basically in dire straits and on the verge of closure when you came back so yeah. um so that's how that finished wasn't it. Yeah, it, it was. I'm, I'm, you know, it, it was sad, but um, yeah, it happened. I caught meningitis when I was in, in Brazil, and uh, a, a wannabe Formula One hero accountant took over the shop. Um, and I mean, he'd been fiddling our Formula 3000 business, and anyway, he made it look as though I'd been uh, running the place disgracefully and all the rest of it, got rid of Adrian. And uh, yeah, he took the team apart, to be honest. Yeah, and like that's the thing with ra- with kind of racing spirit, you need someone there to know what the end goal is. And I think when someone comes in and starts looking at numbers, they start thinking they look only in numbers and maybe not looking outside. So that was kind of a shame yeah. how that ended. But one door closed, another one opened in nineteen ninety. Eddie Jordan is talking to Bernie Ecclestone. He's looking for someone to help run the team, and Eddie or Bernie Ecclestone says there is one guy. Um, that he did know. His name is Liam Phillips. Hopefully, he'll be well by next year. And that's how he ended up working. And he said to Eddie Jordan, "Do you have you heard of Ian Phillips? Haven't you?" And he says, "Heard of him." So <laughs> he knows. So it was like a partnership reunited in a way. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the way Eddie tells the story is that Bernie said, "This is the guy to help you get started. Don't worry, he'll be dead within a year, so you won't have to pay him much." <laughs> <laughs> yeah so there you go just uh you know and, and i tell you what wherever i go to with ej which might be three or four times a year and he starts scouting on he always comes up with that one and he's <laughs> and after 30 bloody years he's still here still still milking me <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah the, like it, it sounded like it was um a, a very fun partnership and you had a good understanding of um Reading Eddie's book, you had a pretty good understanding of how how to behave with certain people, and you know, like when you when you first came in, when you was it nineteen ninety one when you first started, and all the deals had been done. It was just a matter of you building on that. He we shook hands in middle of November, and I said, "Listen, I just need another six weeks or so to get my health really back and up to strength. I will start on the second of January." And he said, yeah, yeah, I've done this deal and I've done that deal. And so I get there, 2nd of January, 8 o'clock in the morning. Right, EJ, where are you? Uh, well, uh, uh, nothing was done at all. Uh, <laughs> uh, the only agreement was with uh, Bertrand Gasho, uh, which wasn't a lucrative one. Um, and, yeah, so there was an awful lot of work to do. 
the 7-Up deal wasn't done. And in fact, word had gone round about 7-Up and Tyrrell had gone in there uh, trying to nick it and all the rest of it. Anyway, uh, between us, uh, we got it all back together again. And um, yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was, it was fun. Uh, it really was. I mean, it was, the staff was tiny. Um, yeah, I think it was 30, probably 36, something like that. Uh, in in total, um, and very few of them had, had had done Formula One before. They you know they'd grown up with EJ doing Formula Three, Formula Three Thousand, um, but it was only probably four that had been had anything to do with Formula One. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it, it was interesting uh, from a challenge point of view, like like that. But hey, I mean, we just we enjoyed it and we got on with it. <laughs> Yeah, and and it seemed to be that spirit all the way through from, you know, gener- getting the articles out on the Thursday, having to be done every week, that kind of pressure, then to running a Formula One team, that kind of pressure as well. There's always a deadline around the corner, and you almost yeah. get accustomed to working in that sort of environment that you have to have something ready by X date, and then yeah, the I, big talks and the big negotiations. Really, yeah, I, I think that's what I enjoyed most. It, it was like a press day. Or press days all over again, and and I like that kind of uh, environment, you know, the the challenge of it, um, and and I think all all the, all the way through probably, yeah, yeah, I I did, um, you know, however big we got or whatever, there was always there was always a challenge, something that had to be done by an outrageous deadline. Um, yeah, working under pressure, as they say. Yeah, yeah. And the psychology of that. So in 1991, obviously, um, you had a couple of different, there was a couple of different sponsorships set up there. The 7-Up car, you had the, the colour green on the car. There was a story as well about the, um, about, I think it was Kodak and Fujifilm. Um, yeah. It, was, this, was this before your time? No. While no. you were involved yeah. in this? Yeah. Yes, I, I was. So we, um <clears throat> We were putting proposals in because this is what you did in those in those days. You get a whisper from somewhere, somebody that somebody might be interested in doing it, and um, and we went to one of the proposals. Went to Kodak, who came back and said, <coughs> "Our colours yellow, not green. Fujifilm is green. Our our biggest competitor." Right, bang off a proposal to Fujifilm. <laughs> <laughs> Hop on a plane to Japan. Hello, Fujifilm. We've got a lovely green car. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, incredible incredible <laughs> so like 1991 obviously um gary anderson was behind the the 191 and several iterations of the jordan after that it was it was a good group of people that you had all together between designing and running the team and you had yourself and eddie jordan as, as sort of um you were kind of organizing like you weren't just a commercial guy either you were very much knowing how to deal with press knowing how to deal with media knowing how to yeah. deal with sponsors and that was a huge asset back then because Many teams from back then there was there was an oversubscribed grid. You had, I think, thirty often thirty six cars fighting for twenty six grid slots, and then you had to do what was called pre qualifying on the Friday just to get into the qualifying session. And those days must have been hell. They they were yes. In ninety one, we were actually the nineteenth team, uh, so there were thirty eight cars, um, and yeah, for the first half of the year. We had to go through this absolute hellhole of a uh, session pre-qualifying on a Friday, eight o'clock on a Friday morning for an hour, um, and 
it was horrible. It was painful. And Bernie wouldn't give you any passes to give for your guests until you got through. So we had people sitting at airports saying, well, can we come to the race? Let us know. Um, you know, oh, it was an absolute nightmare. And of course, there weren't enough garages uh, and stuff like that. But hey, listen, to me, it was how Bernie showed how it was done because there he was at the end of 86 faced with having less than 16 cars in the turbo era. Uh, and he had to guarantee to all the promoters 16 cars. Well, he knew of the 16 he got, probably six of them wouldn't survive uh, the season. So they invented this, the normally aspirated category, which the turbo people had to move into uh, in 1990, I think it was. And all of a sudden, you know, there were... There were ways into people. I think we at March had shown that you could do it, um, you know, relatively on the cheap, um, and and take on the big boys. And you know, a lot of the Formula Three thousand team owners and Formula Three guys, whatever, suddenly saw this as an opportunity uh, to get into Formula One at relatively inexpensively. I mean, you know, driver and driver probably had to bring. A million and a half dollars or something like that. Yeah, better sponsorship. Well, our, our, what we spent in 91 was 10 million, um, of which we only had about six. Um, yeah. Um, you know, you could do it, a bit of ducking and diving, and um, you, know, you, you did things, and, it, and, and you might, oh, we did. We had to wear with all, you know, led, led by EJ and backed up by me. Right, you know, there's some ducking and diving to be done here. Uh, we'll make it through. I mean, EJ had put everything he owned uh, into into the bank, if you like, to yeah. allow a, a sort of a cash flow. Um, and it took him until 1995 to get to get it back. Um, but by which time he had a company that was starting to be worth some money. Yeah, and like that was motor racing teams back then, and. In 91, then, you had Bertrand Gachot and Andrea Ciceres. And Andrea Ciceres was um, an established driver, maybe not had the most spot, uh, sparkling reputation, but a guy who could definitely push the car. And then Bertrand was kind of, um, from what Eddie described, was seemed to be like a good guy who was good with marketing and good with PR and could speak multiple yeah. languages and also a solid driver. Um, so Bertrand had an unfortunate incident with a taxi driver in London and he was put into jail. So... That left you guys on the week of a Grand Prix stuck for a driver in Belgium. And yep. then <laughs> the man's name that came into the mix, several names were in the mix. I believe you were after Keki Rosberg to try and get him to come back. Yeah, that that was that was one of the one of the things. Um Keki was a good friend of mine. And um, you know, I, Eddie and I we we just we didn't know where to start, really. And I said, Well, perhaps I could get Keki to come out of retirement and we were talking with Derek Warwick. EJ was talking with Stephanie Hanson. And, um, you know, and a lot of people were ringing us saying, oh, what about me? What about me? Um, and, you know, I have to say, we weren't really getting anywhere. Uh, Keki told me no. Derek Warwick wanted to do it. Um, and suddenly I get this call from EJ on the Sunday night before the race saying, right, uh, he was on holiday in Spain. Um, uh, he said, right, uh, there's a guy called Michael Schumacher coming to the factory tomorrow with his manager, William Weber. Uh, 
Can you do a, do a deal with him and uh, tell Trevor Foster and Gary Anderson that he'll be chatting at Silverstone on Tuesday? <clears throat> Incredible. Um, and and yeah. then he was did that test at Silverstone. And um, yeah, it seemed like Michael was very much an unknown quantity back then. But uh, obviously at, at Spa, he, he, he absolutely excelled and his talent shone on the first day of practice. Um, and obviously Michael then had that that problem on lap one he qualified seventh and then made a fantastic start around the f- first corner at La Source and coming up the hill at Arouge and Aradion his clutch cuts out and that's the end of the race and from Michael uh, launching it a little bit from what Gary Anderson has mentioned before so well, then I, I, um, I found out the truth about that okay uh, go for only it last, only last summer when Michael's son Mick drove the 191 round Silverstone to celebrate I've seen that yes 30 years <laughs> It turned out that the clutch in the car was a second-hand one, which EJ had bought from Frank Williams. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. There you go. Yes, uh, I, I mean, I was just talking with Gary yeah. and, and Trevor, and it came up, and I thought, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> a second-hand yeah. clutch then is what ended it. Um but then it began um, an almighty battle to keep on to hang on to Michael. So there was obviously an urgency to try and get a deal done for the remaining races. And you you had, a, I believe, what was it called? A letter of agreement or a letter of uh, intent, a letter of intent, as they call it. And then there was the, the fine print and the wording and all that. You had an almighty battle on your hands to try and hold on to Michael. And it culminated in a big meeting in a hotel prior to the Italian Grand Prix between yourself, Tom Walkinshaw, Eddie Jordan, Bernie Ecclestone. What was it like in there? Because um, at the same time, Benetton wanted Michael immediately, so they had to kick out Roberto Moreno. So you yeah. guys were on the phone to Roberto telling him what to say. What was that like? Uh, it was um, an interesting uh, 24 hours, I have to say. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, looking back on it, I mean, Okay, a little bit later, I'll, t- I'll tell you how I how it all materialised, and at the time, I didn't really know. Um, but yeah, uh, I mean, we get to Monza. We tried to get an injunction in London uh, and failed. But Moreno, who was being sacked by Benetton, uh, had a, a very bright uh, Italian lawyer who took out an injunction against Benetton in. Monza town. At the time, Roberto was in the circuit, actually hiding in our motorhome, because, of course, he knew Gary very well, because Gary had engineered him to the Formula 3000 championship uh, a couple of years before. Uh, so Roberto was hiding in our, in our motorhome, and uh, I went to see, EJ hadn't arrived at the circuit yet, I went to see Bernie and said, listen, something dreadful has happened. He said, oh, look, I've been on holiday in uh, Sardinia. I've just bought all this property. They got on the map out and this, that, and that. Oh, I always said we ought to have some sort of contract protection. We really shouldn't allow this sort of thing to be going on. Uh, me, see what I can do. So there we are going on. About 3.30 in the afternoon, Roberto's lawyer wins an injunction against Benetton. They cannot replace him. They Their hands were tied. Yeah, their hands were tied. So then I get a call from Bernie, by which time EJ has just arrived, saying, get up to the oh, very plush hotel 
um, on uh, Lake Como. Um, Jesus, I can't remember the name of it now. Fantastic. The best hotel in, in Italy. And uh, he said, get up here as soon as you can. So we climb in our Fiat 500 uh, rental car. Uh, I think Roberto's lawyer must have come and picked him up. Um, and anyway, EJ and I set off um, to, to the hotel. Um, we get there and there's Flavio, Tom, Bernie. And we sit down and Roberto and his lawyer join us at some stage. I'm not sure initially. And anyway, Bernie said, listen, it's all over. It's happening. Um, there's no money. Oh, you know. Yeah. So anyway, we sit down with Roberto's lawyer and he says, no, 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 no. So he said, they can't put anybody else in the car. Uh, so Flavio comes out and says, oh, do you want a sandwich? Uh, this, that, the other. Walking Jaw comes out, staggering. Do you want a drink? Filling wine all over the carpet. It was the most expensive hotel in Italy. Uh, and Bernie comes out and says, listen, what's going on? I said, Bernie, uh, Roberto has the upper hand. He's got an injunction. And you know, as well as I do, that if they don't run a car, two cars, in qualifying on Saturday, they're excluded from the championship. Yeah. In the says, you're right, you're right. <laughs> so he staggers <laughs> off back, in, back into the dining room. So I'm talking with Roberto and his lawyer. Listen, guys, we can go on. We can make stretch this out till five to one on uh, Saturday. Get you some money. Um, and yeah, in the meantime, Michael comes out from the, from the dinner. And he's all so apologetic. I'm really sorry. I didn't want it. And this isn't what I wanted. And all the rest. Oh of it. wow! And, and and he didn't. To be honest, it was way yeah. over over his head. Um. Anyway, so <laughs> eventually, uh, Bernie comes back and says, "Right, Roberto, half a million dollars for you, and you go away. That's it. Somebody else will drive this weekend, and it won't be you. That's the termination of your contract." Right, that's that's the deal. Off he goes again, and I said, "No, no, we can't accept that. Let's make him wait twenty four hours." Up the deal, Roberto. It's not nearly enough money. Um, and in in the meantime, we told Walking Jaws said, "Well, if you can't have Moreno, who are you going to put in the car?" And we said, "Oh, we're going to put Alex Zanardi in the car." Oh no, you're not. I signed him this afternoon as well. <laughs> of course. Uh, yeah, thank you, Tom. <laughs> Tom was a very good friend of mine. Uh, and um, so anyway, anyway, two o'clock in the morning, Roberto says, and he'd never seen half a million dollars in his life before. He was just, I'll have it, I'll have it, I'll have it. Uh, if I can drive for you, Eddie. And um, <laughs> Eddie said, well, 250,000 of that is mine. I'll give you two races. <laughs> and, Roberto, <laughs> and Roberto said, yes. <laughs> um, there you and, go. And, and, and there you go. And he did it. He, he wasn't mentally wasn't in the right frame of mind. On the back of him, to be fair, we got a couple of sponsors from uh, friends of his. But the worst thing about that whole night was I had to share a double bed with EJ. Um, <laughs> not exactly that. Not exactly the the night in you yeah. wanted in a fancy hotel. <laughs> and and anyway, we got because we didn't know where the team was staying, and you know the weren't. Nobody had a lot of mobile phones, and EJ and I didn't have one. Um, and um, so we set off at six o'clock to go to the circuit to tell the team basically what was happening. 
we pulled up at a set of traffic lights, and the boss of Malvar Italy pulls alongside. Oh, Maurizio, wasn't it? Maurizio Arrivabani? Uh, no, it was before Maurizio. Ah, okay. Uh, bit, bit before his time. Um, but his equivalent. And um, he said, uh, do you want to run Alex? And I said, no, we can't. Walkinshaw said, you signed him, signed a contract. Absolutely no way. Not at all. Oh, so ooh, we're really pissed off. Anyway, we get to the circuit, sort everything out, get Roberto, deep finish, about our boss mate. <laughs> Alex comes round <laughs> in tears, absolutely in tears. Because um, oh, yeah. he was expected because, to drive in that race, wasn't he? Yeah, if um, if all else failed, you know he was he was battling for the three thousand championship um, at the time, um, and you know he was possibly the next big thing. And what had happened? Walker Joy had him in, had him in for a seat fitting just in case he he wasn't he couldn't run Michael and he wasn't going to run Moreno under any circumstance. Um, and but he hadn't signed any kind of contract or anything. Um, so, but we were stuck. We we did two races with uh, with with Roberto, and then we got Alex in the car for the last three races. I think it was um, who Gary Anderson described on a number of occasions as the fastest man that ever sat in a Jordan. Uh, you know, he had to sadly gearbox let him down in in Japan uh, and. Um, Somewhere else, Australia. Oh no, that's right. We finished. We finished fourth and fifth, I think, in Australia. But it was red flagged and it was counted back. So he was sixth, I think, in all. But it was very quick. He was very quick, and he got Andrea fired up as well because what do you mean there's an Italian that's quicker than me? Um, and so it worked well. And the other thing I have to say about Andrea um, was, you know, that weekend at Spa. He was destroyed. He could not believe that somebody would be quicker than him. And, you know, Michael qualified seventh. I think Andrea was 14th. But that that day should have been Jordan's first win because Andrea went from 14th to second and was closing on Senna at about a second a lap when his engine ran out of oil. That's right. He was closing on Senna towards the end of the race, and it looked like he was. Like Senna had problems as well, and Andreas was look, look looked like he could have at least finished second and maybe even beaten Senna with the problems. So yeah, you know, absolutely. and that's and that story gets for, forgotten about at that weekend. It's it's always okay. like um, everyone talks about Michael's incredible debut, but Andrea very nearly won the race. So it he was. Did, um, and and, and but, for, but for Cosworth for getting to tell us that it was a. Uh, it was a high oil using engine on the dyno. Um, you know, I, I'm convinced that we would have done. Absolutely, totally convinced we'd have, we'd have won that race. Um, but hey ho, that's a long time ago now. <laughs> yeah, no worries. So um, I do, I do want to quickly chat about yeah. Alex Venardi. Um, yeah. When you obviously when you when he joined you, he did get to drive a couple of races with you. Um, I think you had described Alex as just like literally the fastest man to ever drive that car. Was it just that Alex had just so, such raw pace compared to um, everyone else? And like, okay, obviously Michael made an impact when he first came in, but um, why was it that you were, wasn't able, you were not able to keep Alex and Ardy for 1992? It, it, was, a, it was a money thing. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, we wanted to, don't get me wrong, we desperately wanted to, but Alex didn't have a lot of backing. Um, We'd already signed Stefano Modena, 
uh, we got conned slightly by his sponsor, who was sponsoring yeah. Tyrrell, and um, said that uh, if we signed uh, uh, Stefano, they'd come with us, uh, and they didn't. Um, and we were, <coughs> um, oh, I don't know when it was, January was quite getting on a bit. We, we had to wait for Pepsi, 7-Up, to make up the mind what they were doing, and they they wanted to continue, but I think it was a slightly reduced budget. Well, the budget wasn't much anyway, but they wanted to sponsor World Tour. That was the, that was the priority, and we didn't really know where we were going, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, I get a call from IMG, who instead with the managers of Michael and orchestrated most of the chaos uh, with him and uh, saying, have we got a fuel sponsor for 1972? 92, 92, 92. Uh, and I said, well, yeah, I'm signing with BP tomorrow. And uh, <clears throat> anyway, they made us an offer. This was a Tuesday morning. They made us an offer we couldn't refuse. The problem was there was an attachment to it was that we had to sign Mauricio Guzman. Um, okay. Who I'd had at Leighton House, I didn't like. Trevor Foster had run him in Formula Three, I think. He didn't like him. Um, but the financial package was such that we couldn't say no. Um, and we'd already done the Barclay, the Barclay deal, but on top of this, we got Tassel, who, you know, over three years, I spent 15, 20 million pounds with us. An awful lot of money, and they weren't demanding or anything. Um, <laughs> And, you know, it was what kept us going during those difficult times. Um, it, seemed, it seemed like Sassol was a, a company that um, both Jordan and Sassol felt very at home with each other. And um, that's what it looked like. They're a South African oil company. And they were just about to, South Africa was just about to have its first Grand Prix in a good while at Kyalami. So yep. it seemed like a, a great deal. To, it's, it was a great deal for Jordan that year. They also got free... 1992 they got free yamaha engines and they were a departure from the cosworth because what's the cosworth was a much neater engine and it was kind of late in the day and i heard if i'm correct bernie helped orchestrate that as well but it seemed that um towards the end of 92 and gary anderson has often said it on other podcasts that it was look of the draw which whether you got a good or a bad engine with yamaha and trying to shoehorn the v12 into a small little v8 car was uh, a bit of a challenge and at least um like with the with the free engine supply, it like it wasn't a fantastic year for Jordan. They were, I think, got a couple of points in the last two races, and um, yeah. then you did a fantastic deal for nineteen ninety three. And so, and again, it, this was kind of born out of, um, in many ways, not many people would say it, but this was almost like a Jordan works engine. I, I'll say that because it was Brian Hart, the man who designed uh, a little V ten for you guys in ninety three and ninety four. But Gary yeah. had a good relationship with Brian, so. And obviously, we we're paying Brian for for those engines, but there seemed to be a a bit of a step forward in '93 compared to 1992. Oh yes, 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 yeah, um, yeah. Just to go back on the on the Yamaha deal, I mean, Cosworth was bleeding us dry, um, and um, in Hungary, which was the week before Spa, uh, EJ came to an agreement with Bernie. Said, "I can get you the Yamaha engine, uh, and it's free," um, and we said, yes, absolutely, we, we have to do it. That is our, our survival uh, thing. And then we get to Spa, only whatever it was, a week later, two weeks later, 
Sunday race morning, Michael Schumacher's manager, Willie Weber, and the guy from IMG came to me and said, uh, can you tell us you'll definitely be running Ford engines? Yes, absolutely, categorically, we will. I lied. Because the following day, EJ was flying to Japan to sign the Yamaha deal. (laughs) But there was only one person in the world who knew that we had the Yamaha deal. And that was Bernie. And and the the reason... Flavio had only just taken over running Benetton. He hadn't got a bloody clue. PK was managed by Bernie. um, And... But Bernie was trying to renew the German television deal. And he was struggling because there were no German drivers. And it was a lucrative, lucrative deal. Yeah. And uh, so with Michael performing as well as he did on uh, Saturday and Friday and Saturday, uh, Bernie was able to talk to the German television people and said, uh, if I get this guy into a winning car, What's the chances of a deal and you will pay this and And that's how Michael left. It was nothing to do with Michael. It was nothing to do with Willie Weber. It was IMG, RTL, and Bernie put the deal together. And Flavio just did it. He was going to be right. Sometimes you think you've got some cards, but then. Um... You know, Bernie Bernie was the ringmaster at the end of the day, and he knew when he knew when uh, he saw a good deal. Um, I do no. have another quick I do have another quick question uh, around the sort of ninety two ninety three era. Eddie to- Eddie Jordan did talk about um, a possibility of offering part of the teal team to sail for to Ayrton Senna at the end of ninety two. Ayrton was uh, a bit disillusioned with things at McLaren. They were losing the Works Honda deal. And he had a couple of um, car trips. Apparently, it's it nothing. It never nothing ever materialized about it. But were you much aware of what was happening there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Brian Hart set it up, um, and um, yeah, because Brian knew Senna from the Tolman days, uh, <clears throat> and uh, yes, Brian set it up. I really thought EJ went out to see Ayrton um, in some island just off. Uh, Rio, uh, but yeah, no. I mean, we had some good conversations, um, and I mean, I was it ever realistic? Probably not, but it uh, made Ed feel good. It made us feel good, and it probably made Ron Dennis feel very angry, uh, which we all like doing anyway. Um, anything to wind Ron up is very easy to wind up, um, and uh, so yes, it did happen. I think. Eddie offering thirty percent of the team, something like that, uh, which at that time uh, was worth absolutely nothing. <laughs> um, but hey, no, it was it was it was it was a nice episode. Um, you know, obviously it it didn't come to anything, but um, we could tell Sassel what we were trying to do. They were quite impressed. I mean, you know, you mentioned Sassel. What happened was. Obviously, the embargoes on anything to South Africa had come down very right early '92, I suppose. And um, Sassel came to fame extraordinary uh, because when they were cut off from their oil supply, uh, they told Sassel, "You've got to learn to make oil from coal." They had a lot of coal, but they had no oil, and that's what Sassel did. They managed to achieve that. 
but in doing so, they had some amazing uh, side products, um, which they wanted to sell to Europe, um, but of course weren't allowed to. And and their their sponsorship deal with us was actually nothing about publicity or anything like that. It was uh, about being able to invite four potential customers to each Grand Prix to sell them stuff. And, you know, the salesman of the area would come to the Grand Prix with, with three guests and he had to sell them 50 grand's worth of stuff or something over a weekend. Well, it turned out to be phenomenally successful because some of these products that they had, um, you know, I mean, Sassel started to make our fuel, but that happened because Elf taught them how to do it because Elf wanted an exclusive on one of the endorphins or whatever they were, technical things. That uh, so it was phenomenally successful for them over, over the street. Well, they would have carried on. They even, uh, they were very much involved in the Brian Hart deal for 93 and 4. Uh, and in fact, they went with it to Arrows when uh, when we did the Perjo deal. Um, but they put a dyno, uh, they built a dyno in uh, Joburg, in their factory in Joburg. Um, and so they could develop fuel to go with the engine and do development work for Brian. Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, they were, they were technical wizards of their own fields. They loved Brian. Um, and it was, a, it was a really, really good relationship. And, you know, uh, Eddie, Eddie uh, goes to Cape Town quite a lot these days, and he still sees the boss of um, Cecil, who we did the deal with. Yeah, and like, like that's one thing that has to be said a little bit. I know, obviously, oil and fuel are easy, easy, they're easy partners when it comes to motor racing, but something kind of about Formula One that, and I think when you guys were ever trying to get Chase lucrative sponsorship deals, um, around the world, like, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of heavy backers of soccer teams and football teams, and, and, and in the UK, there's a certain market, and obviously certain teams now have a certain international appeal. But the thing about, I suppose, with soccer and all that, it could be quite tribal if you've liked a certain team or didn't like a certain team. But when it came to motor racing, it was very much a global thing. And anyone who was involved in F1, you know, th- like whether you win, lose, or draw, like fair enough, if you weren't winning, you were still, and if you, you know, so not everyone likes a winner as well. And also, if, if like, like, for example, the image of the team at Jordan compared to, say, McLaren, Williams, and Ferrari, which were seen as the perceived very serious racers, but then, with, like with Jordan, it sometimes gave this air of um, being a fun team, being a team who were prepared to take chances and do the kind of the little things that the other big teams wouldn't think of to try and win races. And that's what made set Jordan apart. But people used to maybe say, oh, Jordan has a certain image. But underneath it, there was some very serious operators in the team. And uh, it helped a lot with your sponsorship deals, I'm sure. Oh, yes, ab- absolutely. It, it did. Yeah. I mean, we... we... When I say we broke a lot of rules, there weren't really any any rules. You know, Ron Dennis was was uh, too serious for his own good. Um, I mean, Frank Frank was a lot of fun, um, but he, the people who ran his commercial side weren't particularly. And we were just a breath of fresh air. I mean, and you know, led by EJ. You know, he wanted to do things differently. Um, and obviously, I was up for it. And, um, you know, Gary and his guys could get on with doing their job. Didn't bother them. Uh, one little bit, you know, they knew we had to generate money. 
And as long as we didn't get in their way uh, doing it, we were allowed to get on with it. And yes, we were irreverent, I suppose. It, it probably helped that I had a very good relationship with the media because obviously I'd grown up with a lot of them. Um, but no, I mean, we were just a bit of a breath of fresh air, to be, to be honest. Um, and boy, doesn't Formula One need us now? Um, yeah, it's it's a bit too. It, it, that's for sure. And Formula One these Formula One these days compared to how it was in the in the nineties is that um, you know today you now there are mu- big massive uh, multinational corporations running the teams and there's a minimum of three four hundred people. And back then you you often had the team obviously grew in size as the years went on. And so so we'll 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 kind of talk a little bit about uh, ninety three and ninety four and, and ninety five. So you then had um, a very young driver, Rubens Barrichello, joined the team in 1993. He had a good, successful uh, junior formula junior formula career. And you had Thierry Bootsen for a good few parts of 1993, but then was replaced with um, the the guy who burst onto the scene, as, as if you'd like to use that phrase, was Eddie Irvine. So yep. Rubens and Eddie together as drivers... Um, it seems like the the image of it is that Rubens was very much the the good test driver. Gary got on with him very well, um, and Eddie kind of had natural talent, but just sort of came in and you know did things his own way and had his life outside of it as well. He very much treated it as a job. Um, but it looked like an uneasy partnership between the two of them. Did you find that? No, I don't think it was. It was uneasy. The thing is, Rubens was very young. Um, <clears throat> And and yes, he you know he was he was quick, he was talented, uh, but he was very young. He'd been led a, led a slightly sheltered life, I suppose, uh, in in Brazil. Whereas you know Eddie had uh, come from a, a bleakish background in Belfast, and uh, but he made his own way, um, and you know a lot of it helped by EJ, but when he, when Camel, who had sponsored uh, the Jordan 3000 team, were originally going to sponsor the Formula One team, um, and Irvine would have been a part of it, but then Camel were hijacked by uh, Briatore, and so EJ arranged for Irvine to go and race in, in Japan, uh, which he had done, and he'd done very successfully, and being the intelligent person that he is uh, he'd earned some money and he'd invested it very wisely in Hong Kong um, you know Eddie was that much older than uh, than Rubens and the reason Eddie Irvine and I got on so well you know like a guy who I grew up with uh, in, in racing through Formula 3 Formula 1 was James Hunt and James was one of my best friends and what made James different he was an intelligent man. He didn't go any further, faster, take any more risk than he had to. He worked it out just what he had to do. And interestingly, I set up the Marlborough World Championship Drivers Competition or something in 84, 85, mid-80s. Um, with, and, and James was the primary judge of the, of the competition. And interestingly, Eddie was a winner of that competition after I'd gone off and done the Lane House thing. So our paths hadn't crossed, but he was mentored by James. 
And the moment I got to meet him, I could see the same person, a man who was intelligent enough to work it all out, what it was he had to do. Um, and, you know, Rivers was in an immature bubble at, at this stage, if you like. Uh, but Eddie was worldly-wise. That was, that was the difference. I mean, we, they had fun. It wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't the most natural of, of relationships, but there was never really a problem. Eddie found it a bit odd that his fellow Northern Irishman, Gary Anderson, looked after Rubens and not him. Um, um, but you know, it, it didn't. It didn't really. It didn't really matter. It, it worked out in the end. You know, Eddie invested his own money in the two races uh, that he did at the end of '93. Uh, um, Dassault absolutely loved him um, and uh, and his attitude, and um, we got the green light to sign him again. Um, for for ninety four, and it went on obviously into ninety five. Um, Peugeot were distraught when we sold Eddie to Ferrari because they want they thought he was the best thing since sliced bread, and they said we should have got rid of Rubens, who by this stage, I, I think you know we'd been four years together, the relationship was going a bit stale. Um, yeah. But. Uh, Anyway, you know that's what happened. We sold we sold Eddie on to uh, Ferrari for an awful lot of money, um, and hey, away we went. Very good. <laughs> they were they were, and with with Eddie, obviously, when he I'll quickly touch point on when you arrived in Australia in '93 after what happened in Japan, uh, when Senna had a bit of a punch up with Eddie after the race over uh, unlapping himself and uh, Gerhard Berger you know, playing a bit of a cheeky role and feeding Senna a little bit of schnapps and telling him, oh, you, you can't let this fella tell you what to do. And Senna wants down and tries to, uh, has a bit of an altercation with Eddie, which is well documented. And Adam Adam Cooper has uh, the recording of that. I think you can listen to that on another F1 podcast of all that playing out. When you arrived in Australia, I guess, like, this really was, was pandemonium, really, I guess, when all the press were around this story. It was like, if he had won the race, he wouldn't have got that much coverage. <laughs> Well, probably true. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I don't remember there being a lot of fuss in 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 Oz. Really, I, I suspect there was. I mean, this the race in Adelaide was was always the best race of the year. The whole city embraced the event, um, and uh, yeah, you got a lot of attention just by being there. And Eddie hadn't been to Australia before. Um, and you know, uh, I showed him around. It was a fun city, <laughs> and um, and we just got on and enjoyed ourselves. What was what was interesting was in '95, which was Eddie's last race for us, uh, the biggest crowd ever for a Grand Prix, not surpassed by Melbourne last week, as some people will, will have yeah. you believe. Um, <clears throat> you know, Eddie used to come out with me a week, ten days in advance, and we go and talk to schools and motor clubs and nightclubs and you know we just went off we it was business for the for the team i mean you know ej was able to take home um something to keep him happy over christmas um and um and uh yeah we we earned we earned a lot of money for the team eddie got a huge profile and they did this last parade lap of of adelaide and i can't remember how it was 200 and 
20,000 people there, something like that, were just chanting, Eddie, Eddie. And he was blown away. Absolutely blown away. That's all for this episode, and thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to keep an eye out for part two, where Ian talks about the ascension of Jordan Grand Prix into winners. Don't miss it.